Lord, thank you for this church. Thank you for good truth. It's what we're built on. Lord, would you please help me this morning to depend on you fully, Lord? And and would you make it so that your word is applied however it needs to be to the heart of every individual who can hear my voice this morning, Lord? In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 10. The Apostle Paul's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 10. This is what he says. He says, I must go on boasting though there's nothing to be gained by it. I'll go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body, out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though, if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I'd be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So, to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. I want to take you back in time a little bit to September of 2001. That's like 22 years ago, y'all. You remember Y2K? Way in the past now, okay? September 2001, Millsap, Texas, the old high school stadium. They've been in the new stadium for 20 years, but it's still the new stadium. And that old one is still there in some form today. It's basically a dirt patch with, with a little bit of fence around it. But back in September 2001, a young, picture this in your mind's eye, a young Jamie Kinman suits up to play JV football. I was only on JV because we were a small school, didn't have a freshman team, otherwise I would have been on the freshman team. Something that you might not realize about me is that um, I used to be skinny. <laughs> I still am skinny, but I just also used to be skinny. And, and, and so back then... September 2001, we're talking 120 pounds. Uh, Not only was I skinny, but I was also pretty short, especially compared to these guys who, by their freshman, sophomore year, already had like grown man bodies. You know what I'm talking about? They didn't look like kids anymore. They'd been having a growth spurt every summer of their lives up to this point, and I just had not. 
Not only was I a little bit short, not only was I a little bit slight, I also was a little bit slow for someone that small. And so the normal positions that you might put a smaller guy at were kind of out of the question for me because I was just too slow. So they settled on playing me at linebacker on defense. Basically, you got the defensive line, you got linebacker back here. Okay, you didn't have to be quite as fast to play there. I could play smart, I could play aggressive. Um, so that's why they put me there in junior high. And it was fine, I could keep up. But then when we got into high school at this point, it was obvious I was outsized and I was just outmatched. And it was a very sad, sad experience for me. And so on this one particular fateful day in September, I remember I was, I was actually playing and, and the running back from the other team, he starts to kind of break off a run and, and I could take a pretty decent angle at him. And so I did, I take an angle, I come in, I lay what I think is a hit on him. I wrap up and he starts to go down and I'm like, this feels pretty good. Feels like it was going to be a success. Now, unbeknownst to me, as I went in for this hit and, and, and this ensuing wrap up, my buddy and fellow linebacker, Andy, uh, who was significantly larger than me, much more suited to play football. And he'd been hitting the weights for a couple of years. He's a year older than me, all this kind of stuff. He was hot on the trail. And I just remember that as I kind of grabbed this guy and I thought, okay, it's working out. He's going to go down. Everything's good. This indescribable force slams into my back and sides and sent us literally flying in the other direction. That was Andy. I remember he actually hit me so hard. He didn't really hit the other guy. He hit me. He hit me so hard that I temporarily blacked out just for a split second. I've never done that before, never done it since. But I, I, so I black out just a little bit, just a little bit. And, and, and as I come to, we're falling for what felt like forever until we finally land on the ground. And so I felt, I felt pretty proud of what we'd done. It seemed like good teamwork. I chalked it up as a personal victory for myself. Unfortunately for me, back then, when you got into high school, that was when they started taping the games. And so every play, you could go back and, and review kind of how it turned out. And, and, and it turned out that the tale of the tape told a slightly different story. When we, when we rewatched the game the next day, it became clear to me that that play had not unfolded quite like I had thought it did. What I had chalked up as a personal victory was in reality uh, pretty, pretty lame. No real aggression or contact on my part. Looked more like I was going in for a serious hug for a buddy I hadn't seen for a while. You know what I'm saying? Just a weak attempt on my part. Until Andy showed up. And then it got injected with this dynamic like power, you know, from outside of myself. It was concentrated, full of intensity, everything you want in a good football collision, you know. And it, and, and it served to ultimately change the whole direction of this effort that I had been, as it turns out, so erroneously proud of. The real triumph hadn't come from me at all. I was just in the right place at the right time trying to hold on the best that I could. And, and the existence of that tape served me a piece of humble pie that I'm still chewing on 22 years later. So what I want us to do this morning, I want us to consider where does Paul appeal to the tail of the tape in this passage? 
that tale of, you know, the way that things are actually unfolding in real time right in front of us. And what should we make of our own tale of the tape as we critically evaluate this one certain aspect of our lives that Paul is talking about this morning? So we're going to work through the text uh, in four sections. We're going to see Paul as he includes, interrupts, introduces, and informs. Section one, you're going to see Paul includes us in his experience. He says this, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. What, what you see here in verses one through four, you see Paul, he, he's just telling us in, in what, uh, what is in essence the very height of his experiences with Christ. The man in question, of course, who saw and heard all these wondrous things, everyone agrees, Paul's talking about himself. This was an experience that he himself had 14 years prior. The new Bible commentary describes it like this. Having had such an experience would place him on the level of the great heroes of the faith. And by claiming such an experience, Paul could completely outflank his opponents. You know, there was always a a constant back and forth between Paul and the Corinthians. We've heard a lot about that as Jake has preached through 1 Corinthians. And so anyone in in his situation, in Paul's situation, constantly battling back and forth with this particular church, they would jump at the chance to do this, wouldn't they? They would jump at the chance to completely outflank their opponents, kind of, kind of, kind of set it, set it to rest once and for all. The, The chance to unpack this glorious, glorious experience that he, that he had, it could show his superiority to his opponents. And so, so I'm sitting back watching him tell the story, and I'm saying, keep on going, Paul. Like, give us the details. I need to know some stuff about what you saw there because I've got some questions. Well, in section two, you see Paul interrupts his own story. Now, he doesn't actually interrupt it. But he does sort of interrupt the the telling of the story. He heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. It seems like he's just beginning to give us the introduction, right? Things are just starting to get juicy. And then he cuts himself off and changes course. Little context behind the scenes again from the same commentary. Evidently, Paul's opponents had been criticizing him And his claim to be an apostle saying essentially that he had not experienced visions and revelations. We don't care what you have to say, Paul. You've never had these these grand visions, these grand revelations. And so Paul is here to set the record straight. But that's not really what Paul is up to here. That's not the main thing, at least, that he is up to here. And so Paul interrupts his own story as he's given us the introduction. He interrupts his own story to say this. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast boast. It's interesting that for some reason, Paul had set up this distinction between that man from 14 years prior and this man that he currently is. Why does he do that? Section three, Paul introduces his decision. And here, here's what he's decided. He says, on my own behalf, I will not boast except to my weaknesses. We might sit back and say, why? Paul, what are you What are you doing? Listen, people don't boast in their weaknesses. That's not what boasting is. That's more like self-deprecating. That's bad for your self-esteem. Pick up a psychology book now and then, Paul. Don't you understand what you're doing to yourself here? But Paul doesn't care about all that. He says, if I should wish to boast, I, I would not be a fool. I'd be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that, and here's the kicker. 
He says, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. It's very compelling. So as Paul is telling his own story about himself, rather than sort of reveling in the retelling, you know, of the glory days, he decides to appeal to the tale of the tape, the way that things are actually unfolding in real time, right in front of him and the Corinthian church that he's talking to. In other words, Paul's not looking to sort of pad his resume with things that have happened in the past that these people can't substantiate. Just a sidebar of application. Don't we naturally want the opposite of that? Don't we want people to think we're better than what we actually are on the average day? Isn't that part of our motivation, if we're honest, behind things like a well-curated social media presence? Uh, Isn't that what's often behind our careful and cautious approach to what we say and in front of who? Not because we're trying to protect them, but because we're trying to protect us. How much of our lives do we spend wanting people to think more of us than what they see in us or hear from us? The interesting thing about Paul is that stuff about him is true. It's really part of who he is. So why would he choose to limit himself like this? He's limiting himself, isn't he? Section four, Paul informs us of the full picture. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Okay, before we unpack that, quick side note about the thorn. There have been lots of different ways of thinking about this particular subject throughout the centuries and centuries of the church. And I'm going to give you the gist of that argument real quick. Nobody really agrees, okay? So you can feel strongly that it's one thing or another or another. That's fine. You're entitled to your opinion, but I'm just telling you that's not the point that Paul is making here. Was it his eyesight? Was it lust? Was it an actual evil spirit? It's okay. Not the point. But what is the point? The point is this. There are three things there. Number one, God gave him some sort of affliction. That's not a popular way of talking, right? We'd prefer Paul to have said God allowed some type of affliction in his life, right? Isn't that more like 21st century church friendly? But that's not what he said. That's not what Paul has said. Number one, God gave him some sort of affliction. Number two, Paul counts it as a weakness. This is the, the important thing to understand. Paul counts it as a weakness. It's serving to hinder Paul in one sense or another. And number three, this affliction was meant for his good in Christ. I'm going to say it one more time. This affliction from God to Paul that is causing him weakness, it was meant for his good in Christ. And this really sets the tone for our whole message today. And so the next and really most important section describes for us how Paul deals with this affliction under God's direction. We're going to see God reminds and Paul responds. And not not only does he respond, but he responds like with gusto. So let's read verse 8 and following. Excuse me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. 
And then Paul responds, he says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. Then I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities for when I'm weak, then I am strong. You see, Paul had figured out the secret to true greatness in the Christian life. When I am weak, then I am strong. What a wildly unpopular thing to say in Mineral Wells, Texas, America, 2023. Right? We do not like that. But God reminds and Paul respond. You you see, it's God issues this very simple reminder to Paul. He does this over and over again throughout the Bible, doesn't he? He's always trying to remind his people of his good intentions for them. God reminds Paul, hey, the free gift of my grace is enough for you, Paul, without anything being added to it. And, And this grace, by the way, not passive, it's powerful. And if you'll just receive it, if you'll just remember it and and be your regular weak self, then I can work with that. Moral of the story, God delights to use the unusable and to show himself mighty through what is minuscule. I feel like I say this all the time in every sermon, but I just can't get away from it because I'm afraid that we're missing it. When I am weak, then I am strong. The secret to true greatness in the Christian life. So, so I need to think so lowly of my own ability to, to make something happen for the sake of the kingdom that I could only bank on God to come through. I have to remember that if there is any chance for this to work out, whatever this is, for this effort, whatever it may be, any chance for this to be impactful for God's glory, then I have to fully trust him and his abilities and stop obsessing about me and my abilities. I have to remember that there is no way that the church is pushing forward in power unless that power is coming from God. So Paul, Paul has responded. He, he responds. If this is what the Lord has said, then I'm going all in on it. I'm taking it to the bank. I'm, I'm not just going to like endure my weaknesses and limp along till I get to glory. No, I'm going to point them out so that everyone knows that this must have been God at work because it could not have been me. Boasting in his weaknesses means boasting in the power of Christ working through him. Look at how limited I am. Look how little I'm capable of. But look what God can do through a small person who's willing to be honest and let him get the credit. So, for the sake of applying this text in a very specific way, I want to apply it in a very specific way this morning. I want us to take sort of a quick stop over to the Old Testament. We've been talking about the Apostle Paul, aka Saul of Tarsus. I want us to look for just a moment at the first king of Israel, King Saul, who was afflicted in a similar way but the context and the outcome uh, are, are, are very different. King Saul, if you're familiar with him, you know, he, he did do some great things. Uh, but he was also what some theologians like to call a dummy. And he did a lot of dumb things too. He messed up 
terribly at the end of his time as, as king and, and kind of at the end of his reign, this is what happened. First Corinthians, uh, excuse me, First Samuel 16, verse 14. Now, the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendants said to him, see, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the liar. He'll play when the evil spirit from God comes on you and you'll feel better. So they chose a young David for this task. After David had come on the scene and people started to recognize his greatness, he starts to win some battles and so forth. A couple chapters later, 1 Samuel 18, you see Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly for the people were saying uh, they were crediting David with tens of thousands, but Saul with only thousands. And then as Saul's thinking to himself, he says, what more can he get but the kingdom? Well, little did he know. And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Now, the next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He's prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. Saul had his spear in his hand, and he hurls it at David, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. He doesn't mean I'm going to pin him by the edge of his shirt. He's not trying to catch his pant leg. He's trying to go right through the middle of him. But David eluded him twice. So Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. Now, what does this have to do with 2 Corinthians 12? <clears throat> We're going to consider some similarities and some differences. The similarities are minimal in one sense, but they are very much related. Similar to the Apostle Paul, a.k.a. Saul of Tarsus, so they got the name thing going. King Saul was afflicted by the Lord with something. His is explicitly called an evil spirit in the text compared to a messenger of Satan for Paul. I'm not saying they're one-to-one -one exactly the same thing. We got no way of knowing exactly what, uh, what each of them were. So I'm not saying that. But there's a serious similarity between what is being stated there. Now, more importantly, what are some of the distinctions between these two circumstances. First, we'll look at it from Saul's point of view, and then we'll look at it from Paul's point of view. Let's focus, focus on uh, Saul first. Number one, the Lord had abandoned King Saul. The text says that explicitly. The, the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. He used to have the spirit, now he doesn't have the spirit. God used to be with him, now he's not with him. This, this was related to God's judgment on Saul for his iniquity under the arrangement that they had, under the old covenant, in light of the fact that he, he had certain commandments because he was king and, and all these different things, right? Bottom line, very simply, bottom line is God is not with him. And number two, for King Saul, this affliction led to his undoing, not his preservation. See, Saul had already been spiraling at this point. But, but, but here you see things start to get much worse. He tries to murder the rightful king, uh, a man who had done nothing but serve him, serve uh, this kingdom well, risked his life over and over again. This affliction led to, or at least you could say contributed to, Saul's undoing and not his preservation. Now, let's look at the opposite side of the coin. What are some of the distinctions between the two circumstances as we focus on Paul? First of all, the Lord never left him. This affliction did not come upon him apart 
from God's presence with him. God was and is with him throughout. Number two, there's no indication that Paul had actually done anything wrong. So this whole thing that Paul's talking about here, it's not framed as being a a punishment for him. It's not framed as being a consequence of his actions. Number three, this affliction was for his preservation and preparation, not his undoing. Paul frames it as being preventative. It's protective from sin, not a catalyst for his ruin. You see that? And so so the difference here is that God uses Paul's suffering for his good and protection and preparation, right? God has a way of, as Charles Simeon uh, said when describing this passage, God has a way of sanctifying the trouble that his people experience, of, of sort of purifying it for his own good purposes in the world, of using it for the highest good of others in him. And so my main point of application is, is really in the form of a question. As you experience affliction, suffering, difficulty in your life, this is very important. Does your response, does, does your life trajectory more resemble that of the Apostle Paul's story or King Saul's story? Let me ask you again. As you experience affliction, suffering, difficulty, so forth in your life, does your response to that more resemble the, Apostles, the Apostle Paul's story or King Saul's story? Does it look like preparation for your future in Christ or does it look like it's going to be your ultimate undoing? I'm not saying that suffering should not hurt. That's not what I'm saying. Far from it. I'm not saying that that you're not going to sometimes feel blindsided. This is just coming out of nowhere. I'm not saying it's not going to knock you back on your heels or it shouldn't knock you back on, on your heels. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about what does suffering do to the trajectory of your life? Does it look more like Paul or Saul? If you answered to yourself that it tends to look more like King Saul, I just want to make two observations as to why that might be, okay? First observation. American Christians tend to think that we are not supposed to suffer. Here's what I mean by that. Underneath this idea that suffering is not normal in this life is a really bad presupposition that is not biblical at all. The unbiblical assumption is this. Being a Christian is primarily about God making life nice for me. Is that true? The whole thing that God is up to in my life as a Christian, the whole thing he's up to is about making my life really nice for me. Comfortable, whatever, throw another word in there. God, that's just not true. And if we obsessively focus on that as though it were the central point of Christianity, then the church will never thrive as she was intended to. And we're going to waste the best years of our lives that should be spent for the ultimate glory of God and the furtherance of the Great Commission. The biblical truth is this. God saved you for his glory. Yes, he saved you for your good. Absolutely. Yes, he saved you because he loved you. Absolutely. Those things are not, they're they're not combatants. They're both very true and they're both very beautiful. But it also means your life as a Christian is not 
about God making things nice for you. It's about God using your life to testify to his own goodness and glory and grace to a lost and dying world that desperately needs to hear that. Again, don't hear me saying something I'm not saying. I'm not saying that God doesn't care about the details of your life. God cares about the details of your life more than any other person, more than any other being in all of existence. He cares about your life a lot. He cares about your good a lot. He cares about what happens to you in this life a lot. And I think that the text bears that out. Paul knew that. Paul, Paul, the first thing Paul does when he experiences this thorn in his flesh, this affliction, do you remember what it was? He pleads with the Lord. He says three times, I pleaded with the Lord about this. Brothers and sisters, this is the right thing to do. And I want you to use your imagination. I want you to think about the content of Paul's prayers. Potentially the level of des- desperation. He doesn't say, I, I gently prayed to the Lord about this. He says, I pled with the Lord about this. That implies something serious. You can't imagine because you've probably prayed something similar in your own life. Lord, I don't know what this is. I don't know where this is coming from. I don't understand why this is happening. Lord, please take it away. And in Paul's, in, in Paul's case, he, he's probably thinking, maybe he's saying, I, I don't know. Lord, I've seen you heal people. I've I've seen you bring people back from the dead. Please take this affliction away from me. And he even went back three times. But the answer was no. I won't take it away. Did you know That whenever you ask the Lord for something, there's more than one answer that he can give you. No is also a legitimate answer. Sometimes the Lord tells you no as a significant part of shaping you into the person that he intends for you to be for his glory and your good and the good of others. Listen, he's creating a future you that he intends to use in a specific way if you let him. If you trust him, if you go there with him, Paul, Paul is saying this weakness, this struggle, I know that it was meant to be a source of humility for me. It's going to force me to depend on God's power that extends to me by his grace. His, his grace is a source of power. It's powerful. I'll also add, just, just kind of as a side note, I don't get to touch on this much more, I don't think. Is it possible that one reason God has not used you mightily in the lives of others and you're looking around going, why not, Lord, why not? Particularly in view of the Great Commission, is it possible that it's not because you aren't great enough, it's because you aren't small enough. Maybe you're putting all the focus in the wrong place thinking, you know, when I get things figured out, I'll be ready for God to work through me. I've got news for you. That doesn't happen. You're not going to figure it out. You'll figure a little bit more out as you go, a little bit at a time, but it's going to go much slower than you're expecting. Second observation, a reason why you might respond like King Saul. And I want you to know, this is a weighty 
statement, and, and I'm not trying to not trying to do a negative thing here. I'm trying to help you. So second observation in the form of a question. Do you know the presence of God in your life? Remember the Holy Spirit had departed from Saul. This is the reason behind that primary difference between he and Paul. The bottom line, remember, was that God was not with him. And so he didn't experience his suffering in the context of relationship with God like Paul did. So this affliction is not working for his good in Christ. Is it possible, friend, that you've never truly come to know the Savior by grace through faith? Is it possible that you've never experienced the power of his grace and been born again, given a new heart with new desires, new affections, given the Holy Spirit to help you navigate through difficulties and say no to sin and say yes to Christ again and again and again? Is it possible that that you've never come to the Savior, considered him high and lifted up on on the cross and, and just laid the truth down at his feet and said, I, I see it now, Lord. I see that I'm sinful beyond measure. I see that there's no way that I can fix this. I see there's no way that I can make myself right before you. And so I'm just casting myself on your mercy. I hear the truth of the gospel. I hear that there's an offer for sinners like me to come and be reconciled to God. So, so would you please, just whatever, whatever it takes to make that true, make that true, Lord, please, for me. We believe that he died on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sins. A lot of other stuff going on. He goes into the tomb. And on the third day, he's resurrected to seal the thing, right? To seal the thing. And that means that I'm going to be resurrected too. So if that's you this morning, I just want to plead with you to repent, to turn to the unshakable love of Christ. Okay, so first we were considering why you might respond like King Saul. Now, let's consider how to respond like the Apostle Paul. Do what Paul did, and here's what he did. Number one, turn to the Savior. Again and again and again. Yes, the first time. Not just the first time. You wake up in the morning, turn to the Savior. You get frustrated at your kids, turn to the Savior. You experience deep suffering, deep affliction, betrayal in a relationship, whatever it may be. Turn to the Savior again and again and again. This is the privilege that you have as his precious child. And listen to me, you're not bothering him. He doesn't have limited bandwidth like we do as parents, right? He wants this from you again and again and again. Number one, turn to the Savior. Number two, listen. Listen to the Lord. For his grace is sufficient for you. For his power is made perfect in your weakness too. This is the word of the Lord to you this morning. You don't have to, you don't have to take a step back and go, I wonder what the Lord has to say to me today. I'm telling you what he has to say to you. It's right here in black and white. We can hear 
We can hear from the Lord through the church, through the scriptures, through faithful brothers and sisters. And I'm telling you, this is the word of the Lord to you. And number three, and this is very important, maybe the most important. Accept his answer and act on it with gusto, like Paul. Go all in the way that Paul did. Both saw the more gladly of your weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon you. Like it's just a wide, it's like opening the door up wide to be filled with the power and grace of Jesus Christ. Can't fill up a full cup. But if you come empty, you will be filled. God, listen, God doesn't need you to be at your best. He really needs you to be on your knees in submission to him. God, God gifted Paul with weakness as a means to an end. He has always delighted to work through frail people because it makes his greatness the most obvious. There, there, there's no doubting his ability and his intention to save when he exerts real power through weak people. So if you're, if you're and this is hard, especially for men, if you're willing to move into those spaces of your weakness, spaces where you're weak, it will be uncomfortable. It might even be painful. But listen, he will work there if you'll trust him. Number four, bank on God's promise of good to you no matter what. If God's promises of ultimate good to you are true, and they are, then you can be content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, persecutions, calamities. It doesn't matter. And and think about it. What do you even have to boast about anyways apart from your weaknesses? Your spiritual life is like me trying to make a tackle in late September. It's pretty lame until it gets injected with that dynamic power that comes from outside of yourself. Like, yeah, maybe you were in the right place at the right time. Maybe you're holding on the best that you could. But man, it's going to be him who's able to forcefully come in and change the trajectory of things. Not you. Your spiritual life looks like a really weak hug. Not a full contact attempt. So I want to... I wanna end with this. This particular text that we've been looking at and the whole concept that's bound up behind it and the the whole way that we're trying to apply it to ourselves is not an anomaly in the scripture. You understand that, don't you? It's not unheard of for God to say, no son, you're going to have to suffer through this for now. In the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night he was betrayed, Christ too prayed in desperation to the Father and was told what? He was told no. Father, if you can remove this cup from me, what's he talking about? He's talking about extreme suffering. Father, if you can remove this cup from me, please do it. Yet not my will, but but your will. And God said, no. But Christ trusted the Father's plan for him, didn't he? Even though it meant great personal 
pain for himself, both physical and emotional and spiritual, all that stuff. The truth was that Jesus had to suffer to fulfill God's good will for his life and for the millions of people throughout history who would come to know him. Had he not suffered, he would not have died. Had he not died, he would not have resurrected. Had he not resurrected, he would not have sealed the promise of our redemption and conquered death on our behalf. Don't you see? Don't you see how one thing leads to another? And the economy of God's promises and purposes toward us. And so just remember that in some small way, our lives are intended to operate according to a similar pattern to constantly point back to the beauty and the truth of the gospel and to constantly point forward to the future that we're going to enjoy with him when all affliction will cease and we become like him once and for all for we will see him as he is. Remember, cross first, then a crown. If it was true for our king, why should it not be true for us as well? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness and your glory and your grace toward us in Christ Jesus. All these things that we do not deserve, that we could not earn, Lord, they're, they're on full display in this text this morning. Thank you for the words of the Apostle Paul. Thank you, Lord, that you love us and that you love this church. Pray, God, that you would help each individual person here to submit to the scripture, to submit to the promptings of the Holy Spirit this morning, Lord. According to your will for them, for their preservation, for your good purposes, not for their undoing. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.